Are you listening to this show hoping to get some golden nuggets to help you on your way to recovery? Well, great. I hope that you find them because that is exactly what this show is for. But if you really want to take your recovery all the way, completely commit and get on track with your goals, whether they be finally feeling overall healthy, finally getting pregnant, or finally getting back to training, you'll want to join us inside of the HA Society. Not only is this the perfect community to ask questions and get your support and the accountability that you so often need during these uphill battles with body image and understanding nutrition and incorporating exercise, but it's also a hub of exclusive resources for HAers. All of the HA podcast episodes are released in advance and completely ad-free, so you can listen on the go to the raw, unedited versions, uninterrupted. All of the one-on-one coaching calls, of which we have two a week in different time zones, are uploaded to our private podcast feed so that you can listen to events with practitioners and the past community calls as though they were bonus podcast episodes, because I know how much you love to listen to this kind of stuff. And in these calls, we cover requested topics like overcoming the weight gain fears, communicating with friends and family about our HA, diving into how HA works, and debunking the imposter syndrome that so many of us have around this diagnosis. There's also an entire resources section with lectures, workshops, and training from the past events that are hosted by experts like Sarah Liz King, Laura Lyons, Kaylee McDevitt, Holly Dunn, and many more. As a member, you also get direct access to myself and Coach Ashley in the DMs. So if you have personal questions or need individualized advice about your recovery, we're in there answering your questions in the DMs, as are all of our other members in the group who impress me week after week with how they show up for each other. It's incredible. It's like women are just all becoming mini coaches for each other. It's so good. The HA Society is really the place to be if you're going through recovery, no matter what stage you're at. Whether you have HA or you've got a few recovery periods, we have your back and we're all your new best friends. So come and meet us at thehasociety.com forward slash join. That's thehasociety.com forward slash join and the link is in the show notes for you okay on with the show hey and welcome to the hypothalamic amenorrhea podcast an adulting advice podcast production i'm danny sheriff and this is the place to come if you care about getting your period regularly this podcast aims to educate inform and keep you motivated on your period and ha recovery track let's dive in Quick disclaimer, guys, I am not a doctor and this content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek the advice of your physician. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Hypothalamic Amenorrhea Podcast. It is me, your host, Danny, and I'm joined today by Molly Burney. Hi, guys. Did I say your last name right? You absolutely did. And I always, always intro the people. And then in the middle of the intro, I'm like, I forgot to check the name pronunciation. <laughs> I had a moment of like, oh, how's this going to go? And it sounds like it went okay. Hilarious. I do feel like one of my many skills is pronouncing names. That, that really is a skill. It really is. Because it, it just ingratiates people to you immediately if you're able to do it right. <laughs> yeah. But I never get my name said right. So I always get like some like sheriff sharif 
or something like that. So I get it. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on the show. Molly is going to talk to us today from two perspectives, which is one, her own story of AJ and struggling, which we're all here for, we're all pumped to hear about it. Mm-hmm. And also from a perspective of working with many women with many different issues, but that all intersect somewhere typically with having AJ. So she's just obviously got like a wealth of experience to just share with us today. So Molly, welcome. Tell us about you and what you do exactly. And just tell me your story. Sure, sure. Uh, well, certainly not not all my clients have AJ, but it is something that I tend to notice with the uh, the those that I work with that are struggling with any disordered eating, it tends to be uh, more common than not, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a clinical life coach. That's my background. I'm a former therapist who decided, you know, I, 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 the therapeutic conversation is great, but I like to be a little bit more playful and irreverent and heavy handed when necessary and collaborative with my clients. So a coaching conversation was, uh, was certainly the better direction for me. Um, And I I happen to uh, have a specialization in working with people with disordered eating and chronic dieting and people who have had really complicated and even compulsive relationships with exercise. So that which is certainly part of my own story, um, as you might have guessed, given the topic. Um, So I uh, I, I work with I work with a lot of clients who are struggling with body image issues to to any degree. Um, And it's not uncommon to see hypothalamic amenorrhea show up as um, as a talking point and as one that really requires um, a totally different degree of of focus because we're not just dealing with the psycho-emotional anymore. We are now dealing with the physical repercussions of a belief system, which is usually based in fear and and control and things like that. That was a very vague answer to your question here. It makes no sense. It's funny. I was like, I was chatting in an email to a girl who reached out to me this morning and was like, here is my situation I you know have an ED and I have no one to support me and I've tried working with a dietitian and I just like need the next person to go to and in my head I was kind of like yeah you need this like person who understands your world but can also talk to you a little bit from you know like can specialize in what you're going through so that kind of sounds like um a good application for that person. Well, let's center my way. And what I do love about coaching, and this is distinct from therapy, um, but as a as a therapist, I'm drawing on my body of experience, that, or excuse me, my body of academic knowledge and, and therapeutic instincts. But as a coach, I'm drawing on a whole body of experience where I get to share, like, here's the blood that I left on the field, and here's my own experience with this. And I find that, especially around disordered eating, chronic dieting, and and frankly, compulsive uh, behavior around exercise, it's really helpful for people to have heard exactly the play-by-play of of what I what I went through. That I'm I'm just as bananas historically, um, and I I really understand the the nuances and. Man, yeah. the, um, the mental gymnastics we put ourselves through in order to get this stuff. So and coaching yeah. can be the right conversation. Awesome. Well, speaking of, I would love to hear about you know, how bananas you are. Oh, what? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Category. What are we talking about here? Um, well, I'm, I, let's see, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm, I'm 35 now. Um, I've been in recovery from some gnarly bulimia for about 14 years. So that's, that is long behind me, but Truly, recovery didn't start until I stopped throwing up um, and 
and then beginning to see, oh my gosh, this actually extends beyond just throwing up and just being neurotic about calories and that sort of thing. So I got abstinent from my eating disorder when I was 22 or so. Um, doesn't, is that the math? I, I, I can't even math right now. Forgive me. You don't even ask me at all. Good. That kind of a um, but I, you know, what was always sort of sneaking in the background was like, yeah, yeah, I'm not bulimic, but I'm going to be a little compulsive with exercise. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and was always honest with, uh, with the, my, my treatment team at the time, um, that I was working with. And, um, as I got older and my recovery matured, and then I eventually went for a master's in clinical psych and, you know, my, my recovery was certainly solid, but there was always this kind of exercise stuff going on in the background where like, I I just didn't, I don't want to take off days or I wanted to lift heavier. And so naturally when I, when I fell into amateur boxing of all things, um, it it happened to align really well with the compulsive exercise part of me because there's this intense training protocol. And with the, um, the amateur team that I was invited to train with, it was, this was like a six day a week ordeal. And on the seventh day, it was not time to rest. It was time to just go for a gentle five mile run or something, which for me was always, always insane. I, I hate running. Oh, by the way, I should ask, can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, definitely. Oh, good. good Cause I, I kind of can't fucking help myself. I know. I can't like, I, even if I tried, I wouldn't be able to. Not. I know. It's hopeless. It's hopeless. <laughs> So I, I, I fucking hate running. Um, so even the five mile run was not a gentle five mile run for me. It was an um, experience of martyrdom. Um, so really intense training schedule. And it was compounded by the fact that because I'm boxing, because I'm actually in combat here, and sure, there's, there's gear on, but um, I'm still getting hit in the head pretty regularly, that my fitness is in di- like, it directly impacting how injured I'm getting. So... If I have if I have better uh, cardiovascular health, if I have more endurance, if I have more strength, I'm less likely to get hit. So they're justifying, oh, I need to go lift more. I need to go train harder so that I don't get hit. It became this whole um, right. whole thing to just justify the compulsive exercise, really. And this was in recovery. And the reason I say this is in recovery is because I was still feeding myself. I was still really conscious of my own psycho-emotional well-being. I was also just watching this disordered element play out in this other field. Um, And the other thing is I was training with guys, which meant I was getting hit a lot. And I was getting hit a lot harder than, frankly, was necessary, I think, uh, for anyone who was was training to fight. And yeah, that uh, that even when I was um, training to, to for fights and had to make a particular weight for fights, I did that in a really, um, frankly, sober, for lack of a better word, sober way. That I wasn't doing that with exercise. I wasn't doing that with um, with food. I was just doing like being as as careful as I could to um, to maintain the weight that I needed to to uh, to maintain to fight, but not in any way that had to look look like purging or restricting or anything like that. Um, it was really was really the exercise. And there was a sense of, in my body that I got to have more muscle and more definition and more strength as I moved through the world. So there was an argument to be made that although it, the, the, the boxing ate my life time-wise um, and certainly commanded me in terms of how I had to spend my time and with exercise, I loved how I felt in my body as a result. I loved the experience of boxing. I loved a lot of what I was learning. I just was also aware this couldn't possibly be sustainable, right? 
And in fact, it was not because um, several years later, uh, we, my husband and I, or my now husband uh, and I were, were talking about having kids and I just decided to stop boxing because that was enough concussions and enough getting hit in the head, but I was still training to that capacity. I was still like training with the same frequency as though I was going to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we started uh, talking about trying to get pregnant and I went off the pill and was waiting for a period and continued to wait for a period and more anticipation, but no period. So that was the first kind of stunning indication of, oh, is, is something wrong here? I didn't even know something was wrong at the time. Um, I went to go see my OBGYN and she had said very bluntly, oh no, your body thinks you're at war right now, which would make sense given how much I had been getting hit and how much I was lifting and how much stress and intensity. For you, it was a very literal sense of like, it's not safe to have a baby. Exactly. I was just flooded in cortisol constantly. And it literally was not safe to have a baby. Go ahead. Sorry. You were getting punched and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) My response was like, okay, well, what if I just don't get hit? What if I can keep lifting really intensely? Uh, Okay. I'm I'm stopping the boxing, but what if I, uh, can I stay in the gym that frequently? So I tried to do it my way naturally being like, well, lightweights doesn't count or you know uh intense yoga class counts as rest right no molly none of those things count as rest none of those things are restorative at all so um it was a lot of scrambling through the process of like just trying to bargain it was like trying to bargain with the 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 gods of athleticism like what can i get away with that my body will start operating in the way that it needs to that'll have a normal cycle but i can still maintain the body and the level of fitness that I wanted. And I realized I had so much identity wrapped up in this idea of being someone who was fit. I had so much meaning and value wrapped up in the idea of being someone who could push herself to those levels that I was terrified that if I stopped pushing myself, I was going to lose some part of myself. Like I was going to lose the capacity to, to operate with that much discipline or that much intensity. Um, or like I, I would lose my, it's like I, I would fall down in, into the, the couch of laziness forever. <laughs> that was, I think, the fear um, because there was no, there was no concept of what moderation would look like. It was only either I'm going all the time or there's nothing. And so I was just terrified that was what it was going to look like perpetually. A lot of people are really resonating with that. And it's like, so many of the questions that people ask if I put up like a little what do you want to hear about question or something on Instagram is just like dealing without with not having exercise right right. but with eating but not exercising right it's just like the one of the biggest fears that people have and I so resonate when you when you said um that if you if you stopped you would lose a part of yourself that was a huge part of me too. It's like, who am I then? Absolutely. That? And that's exactly the question that, that actually started to heal this process for me. Mm-hmm. That I began with, who the fuck am I if I can't do these things? And that had to alchemize into curiosity. Like, who the fuck am I if I can't do these things? I want to know. I then you realize, well, well like what, uh, tell me what happened to you. But for me it was scary, but then it was also like, oh, it's almost like I get to kind of like start my life again. I was a different person. What would I do? And 
when you kind of look back on your exercise and I'm sure you had many times like this too because I also came from an athlete situation Mm -hmm. um you spend a lot of time like getting ready for training thinking about like what else you could be doing if you didn't have to go to training but you know I have to go to training and it's almost like a physical like if I'm walk, if I'm on my way to training, like I'm already going. Oh yeah, I'm. I'm at, yeah, it's already going. So you sort of have these like fleeting fantasies about what life would be like without this crazy regime, right. and now it's in front of you as as a reality. Right. You basically are entering into the world of, of active recovery, I suppose. So what happens yeah. next? That was the idea. But I, I had to find my curiosity around this. And I also had to ask ask myself this, did I, did I want not exercising to work? Did I want to not exercise and prove that that was a ridiculous thing to do? Or did I want to not exercise and prove that that was a healing thing to do? Because there was a way I could approach this putting down the exercise and have a really shitty attitude and be a martyr about it and be like, no, I have to, I have to do this thing. And this means I'm going to be unhealthy. And this means I'm going to be unmotivated. And this is, you know, that it would, that I could fulfill on that slippery slope fear, or I could decide that I wanted to, to work out. Like I could decide, yeah, I'm terrified of this and I'm going to do the best I can and rebuild my body and see what happens. But I don't, I don't actually want a life where I have to be a slave to the gym in the way that I was. Well, not that I didn't also enjoy the gym, but it certainly, it can certainly be a complicated relationship. Um, but that if I wanted my life to resemble, like to have room for a baby and my career and my husband and also some fitness, that fitness wasn't going to be able to come first. So I needed to build my life in a way where it was actually sustainable. So I had to want this to work out. Um, and I really had to kind of get my behind myself because I can be someone who's in a tremendous amount of self-pity if it's uh, if I'm not being careful. I can certainly fall into my own martyrdom of like, my body betrayed me and I lost my brain. How about I betrayed my body and I ran into the ground and I abused it. So of course I lost my period. Of course. So that was really one of the big... Um, turning points. And I had to sit with the fear. I had to build a relationship with the fear of who am I going to be when I lose some of this muscle? Who am I going to be when I allow my body to soften? Which is, that's what my doctor had said. She's just to let your body soften. I was like, that is the dirtiest word you could possibly have told me. I was just so silently offended by it And, and really not offended, but terrified. Yeah. Terrified. Well, it's terrifying because everything you've heard up until that point is is to harden up your body get right. a little harder you're looking a little soft in that's a very negative exactly way right. exactly and then that doctor is like hey get soft and you're like, yeah. what? um and that's something i a point that i would love to sit on for a minute it's like a little nugget which is that we spend we get told this message so so much mm-hmm. that you know oh, harden up lean out up blah, 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 um, that we don't even get like a minute to sit there and think, what is that actually asking me to do? As mm-hmm. in, you're asking me to, to, to put my body through some, through this really hard experience. And it, I almost could liken it to, um, you know, someone telling you maybe how to parent your child and mm-hmm. telling you to parent your child, like in, in a very strict way. Right. And you should, restrict your child of all of these things you should make them do all of these activities so that they fit into this norm that i deem as being what is valuable 
and you do not think for a second about how like how that's going to affect your you but if someone was telling you to do that to your child you would be like what we're being told by this media like this is how you parent your body this is how you take care of your body. This is what's required. But we're not told about any of the repercussions of that, potentially. We're not told about the hormonal imbalance or about the sleep deficit or about the neurological issues that show up as a result. In fact, if you do what we say, you will be healthier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a a really fucked up um, marketing enrollment plan that we've been since birth, um, really into, into our adolescent years of like, here's what's required of you to be a woman. Here's what's expected in order for your body to be of value. In terms of that. Oh. God, it's so true. It is so much pressure everywhere. Clothes are made and look a certain way and are deemed to look good if you're only a certain way. And that That's absolutely right. I'm looking up this, uh, this Instagram post that I made a couple of weeks ago. And there's a, a picture of um, myself and uh, at six years old, which is like the, the most innocent photo of me. I, I think I've, ever seen and it says dear six-year-old molly fair warning your value as a woman will be dependent on a delicately balanced formula of being attractive but not vain being tough but not bitchy and being ambitious without being off-putting please plan accordingly sincerely the patriarchy i realize that sounds a little like heavy-handed feminist but that was exactly that was the, the context that i grew up in was my dad saying you have to be physically fit you have to be attractive but but don't be vain don't be don't be needy about it which is for me, how I fell into athleticism, it was like the, the safe ground where I could, that's where I could be vain about my body, but I wasn't going to look needy or too confident or whatever. So like all, all of these requirements of womanhood that were actually very counterindicated and very complicated and very nuanced, it's bananas. It is bananas. Yes. It's very important that you figure out how to be effortlessly always gorgeous. Right, right. Yes, like that is uh, oxymoron. (laughs) Okay, cool. So what was it that, was it your experience and your studies that kind of helped you do all of this reframing and come and be able to work through this so productively? Or are we skipping through some dark times here or what's going on? No, I I certainly don't mean to imply that it was all smooth sailing. Like, look, yes, I'm a mental Mm -hmm. health professional and um, I have plenty of years in the field, but but mental health professionals need their support as well. Um, and so I, that's why I'm the first to admit I have a therapist. I have a coach. I have an incredible husband. He is also a therapist. <laughs> and why is that always a thing? It just is. We met in rehab a million years ago. So I don't know that it's it's the typical therapist, you know, countering each other. But uh, that, that, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I, when I was in for an eating disorder, I ended up meeting him. He was in for uh, um, various other substance recovery. Um, but yeah, no, I, I have I have a killer support system. Of course, there were dark times in this. You know, there were times when I hadn't been on the scale in years where in recovery in allowing myself to recover from hypothalamic amenorrhea i was back on the scale in a pretty compulsive way just just in fear and the best i could do was be in communication with my people about it be like hey here's what i'm doing right now i know this is kind of insane um i know this is probably not recommended and i can't stop looking at the scale like i've i'm i'm in a bit of a regressed place here where this is what feels important help me work with this so I absolutely got support around this. Absolutely. Um, read a lot of books, got on my knees a lot. Um, 
there were times when absolutely I'd, I'd be in child's pose in tears, um, in fear about what what is this going to mean for me? And who am I going to be if I don't, that, that this sounds so, so fucking trivial, but um, really, who am I going to be without abs? That was the fucking question that that ended up, you know, being so so crushing. Um, and in the next moment was like, hold on, you're trying to get pregnant with all of this. You're, you realize you're not going to have abs while pregnant either, Molly. Like how much identity do you really want to construct around this, this really fleeting thing? Um, so getting to have both tremendous amounts of judgment at that thought, who am I going to be without my abs? And then enough compassion, who am I going to be without my abs? That I have to have compassion for all of how much fear I must be feeling to be attached to a thought that's that ridiculous. How much of a, a foundation of of identity must have been laid around my relationship to my abs at a young age in order for me to be like 30 years old on my knees crying about potentially losing them? Like there, there's a lot attached to that. Um, and that's not to say that I'm I'm not responsible for that as well, but I do have an eye on the patriarchy and the, the culture at large for how they how they contribute to that, you know? Yeah, well, you have to be always sort of on your guard about what is this message that this person telling me? Right. Um, what? Yeah, because we're going to, we need to be fighting off those messages all the time. So you kind of do have to keep an eye. Exactly right. But that was that that idea, like, who, who am I going to be without my abs? Yeah. I could decide that, like, I, I don't want to be okay without my abs. I have to find a way to make this work. I have to either sacrifice my body to have abs. Does that even fucking make sense? No. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also decided I want to be someone who's okay if she doesn't have them. I want to be okay with that. And the only way I can be okay with that is to move forward into this unknown world where my body is going to have a little bit less cachet when I go out in the world and have to be okay with that and got to be curious about what's going to come as a result. What kind, How am I going to be mad? Is it going to be exactly how I think it's going to be? Is it going to be less traumatic? Is it going to be differently traumatic? I had to bring my own curiosity rather than assuming I knew that I needed my body to be in a particular order in order for me to operate in the world. Because that just might not be true. Yeah, a lot of women are experiencing the thought process that you're describing. I guess we all just have these irrational thoughts around, like, what is going to happen to our lives? Right. Are we going to just become nobody? Right. We were were once in the top percentile of successful women based on this criteria. Now that I'm in the middle, what does this mean? And, well, so you... You went through that and the reality is you probably go through it still every day. Ongoing process. And I say this to clients as well. Like this is not something where you're going to wake up and it's going to, you're going to be cured because we're not inoculated against the information we're getting from society. This stuff gets triggered all the time. I just have a relationship with the thoughts. So I have those thoughts rather than those thoughts have me. I don't have to be a hostage to the, the body delusion here. I can just kind of observe, oh, right, there's some of that body noise. I'm, I'm familiar with that. Oh, really? Oh, what an interesting contribution. You're going to insult me this morning. Ah, all right. All right. Good to know. Maybe put you on the back burner right now. Yeah. I can engage with them. The bit that you're describing right now, a lot of the, like this podcast is kind of for, it's for people at all stages of recovery, but very much so for the people right at the stage you're talking about right now. Mm freaking out about the dialogue, the big changes maybe haven't happened yet, or they've happened, but you still don't have a period, that kind of situation. So what happened next, as in how did your thought processes change? How did your body change? What Mm -hmm. things were becoming easier? What 
anything unexpected, whatever tangents are most important to you? Sure. Um, I think one of the things that I noticed more most immediately was that my sleep improved, which who knew um, if you're not like overloading your nervous system with intensive weight training or boxing, that of course you'd be able to sleep better. It just hadn't, hadn't been something that I'd um, quite put together. So um, yes, my body did soften. Um, I didn't gain a ton of weight, which was surprising. I was expecting to, um, but it, it didn't happen. But the, the composition of my body absolutely changed. Mm. That required a lot of work. Um, and, and it's arbitrary that the number on the scale didn't change that much. It was just a, trust me, the body composition did. The way I looked, the way I felt, the way I moved, all of that absolutely shifted. Um, but I think the, you know, in reading so many stories of women who were struggling with this, I realized that I could go the half-assed approach and be a year and a half. Hey, are you trying to recover and maybe even fall pregnant naturally? I thought that might be you. And if so, we have created our best ever yet resource for you. Totally free. This is a masterclass. I've called it my masterclass because I have put everything into this, right? This masterclass is designed for you if you have HA or have had HA and are dealing with suboptimal cycles and you're serious about restoring those babies to full optimization and you want to create the ideal foundation for a pregnancy. This is going to be for you. So in this masterclass, I'm going to provide you a lot of things, including a lot of case studies, mine, Ashley's and Mishi's, as well as lots of our past clients and what their challenges were and what they had to do to overcome it. And we cover a really wide variety of types of cases of HA. So everything from primary amenorrhea and missing periods for years and years to short-term amenorrhea and what we did to handle that situation as well and how long it took these people to go from HA to pregnant with this system and how long it took them to go from HA to ovulating, of course, with this system. So lots of information, lots of case studies, lots of stats. We go through why this is not a weight gain plan and how we actually divide you into phases, the three phases of HA and determine what your starting point is so that you have a good idea of where you need to start with your actual changes and lifestyle and nutrition changes. We even cover questions like HA and people with a normal BMI and recovery for people who have had HA for too long. There's so much in this 60-minute masterclass. Y'all, I'm impressed. And at the end, I'll also be running you through how to get a free HTMA, hair tissue mineral analysis through us, which is a part of our process for recovery and preconception clients that we're happily going to give you for free 99 as a massive thank you, of course, for joining the masterclass. So go to the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass or head to our website and you'll find a link for it and find when the next available presentation is going to be. That's the hasociety.com forward slash masterclass. Nothing to trying to recover my period, still not having got my period and feeling frustrated that my half-assed approach wasn't working or I could go all in. And based on my compulsive history, as you might've guessed, I am the all in type. I, I gotta know that it's gonna work. Um, 
I, I want to know that if I don't get my period back, at least I've thrown everything at the wall. That was really, that was really where I had to go. Um, so what, what changed was largely that realization that I was doing some kind of half measures being like, this, this doesn't count like account is working out, right? Or this is enough calories, right? Not so much. Um, so no half measures. I had to go all in. That was a big part of it. I get a lot of questions um, about when, when people say, I tried to go all in, but then like the calories weren't enough. So I had to up more. And mm-hmm. the question mm-hmm. I get is like, when do I get to stop upping them? And I don't know, you're free to answer that question however you want, sure. like how you figured out you needed to eat more. Um, we do say numbers on this podcast and mm-hmm. uh, we just like tell people in advance. And um, the reason for that is because a few of us were – um, the only times we had heard examples yeah. of what low calorie is, is in like, I don't know, just other sources of that information. And it would always be presented as like 1200 calories. And, um, and so there was a lot of comparison between like, well, I wasn't eating that low. Yeah. So I must've been eating enough. And so that's where sometimes I find a problem with not saying the numbers right. uh, because quite consistently, the numbers are, um, they're pretty much the same for everyone when we say it out loud. So it's like not really that scary, but it's helpful to say the numbers. It's totally up to you. Yeah. Yeah, So what did like increasing your food look like and stuff? Yeah, no, I I had to increase to like 23 to 2,500 calories a day or so, that that's what it had to to look like. And I was eating, I I wasn't paying attention to really how much I was eating before, because thankfully, if, if I had not been in eating disorder recovery, this could have been really a dangerous experience because there, there could have been restriction, there could have been purging, there could have been all of that, but that was not simultaneously part of this story, thank God. Um, so I, I think I was probably eating that much, like the, the 23 to 25, maybe more like 2000 a day um, when I was training. It must have been actually more than that now that I'm, I'm thinking about how, many, how much I was actually um, burning. While you were training? or yeah. you were- no, 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 it must have been more than that when I was training. But I'm, this is what I'm saying is that I, I wasn't closely watching the numbers when I was training. It was when I stopped right. training that I was like, oh, now I have to be neurotic about this, right? Um, but no, I, it was when I, I knew that I had to up the amount of food that I was eating when I realized I was thinking about food more often, um, that it was just the thought. And then I could, I could actually trust that my body was asking for food via fantasy, now, that was something that I had to discredit previously. That wasn't something that I, I had faith in before. I was like, oh, I can't trust my brain. It's thinking about ice cream because, I don't know, because my brain's stupid. <laughs> and I, I just needed to kind of recognize that, that I could trust that if it was introducing a fantasy of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it's because I probably needed some fucking fat and carbs and some sugar and go for it. That that was actually a... a, 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 a excuse me, like an evolutionary idea that this fantasy was going to bring me to the food that my body actually wanted. So that was an indication of intelligence, not of some fantasy I should be ignoring. So that was how I I, I really recognized that I needed to increase the food. Yeah, because I love this point. When you stop restricting and go Mm -hmm. a while where you eat what you want to eat when you want to eat it, there is a day and night difference between full satiated and not even interested in food but when you live in a restricted state Mm -hmm. which can include thinking you're eating enough and training a lot so you're just still hungry anyways um, 
you you just think there's no way I'll never be like this. Like right. if I go all in or whatever, I'm going to uh, just eat forever because I noticed that that's what my brain does. No, right. you're a total. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I, when I work with clients around the concept of self-compassion, um, whether they're disordered eating clients or, or clients just working on, you know, anxiety relationships or life transitions, the issue of compassion is dealt with in exactly the same way as the issue with trusting your body with eating, that there's a fear. If I'm compassionate with myself, that it's going to be this slippery slope. And then I'm just going to be compassionate and lazy all over the place and let things go and let myself off the hook. I'm like, that's not compassion. That's not intuitive eating. Like if we're compassion requires our awareness of the process. If we're actually compassionate with ourselves, it's going to include some discipline. And it's the same idea with the intuitive eating, that if we allow ourselves to lean towards intuitive eating, that there's going to be a natural, and discipline is not the right word here, but um, a natural shutoff point. If we're actually in tune with this, our body is going to say, okay, that's enough honey bunches of oats, Molly. You can probably put that away now. Like there will be a point in which your body communicates that to you. We've just got to be listening. Intuitive eating doesn't work without listening in the same way that compassion doesn't work without our listening to our our own intuition about when it's time to hold ourselves accountable again. It kind of reminds me of the the mechanism of palate fatigue and how you ever experienced maybe say you go to mcdonald's and you Mm get fries and you get a coke and you are eating your fries and then suddenly you're like oh i don't want to sip of my coke right the fries are like salty and fatty and the coke is sweet and cold and so those two together allow you to feed the cycle if you just ate chips and you sat there and you didn't have anything to break it up Mm -hmm would very quick more much quicker become done with the chips right because you're and it's probably subconscious in a way that we're like eating and then we're like oh i could use a sip of my coke there's a reason for that you're getting sick of the chips Mm -hmm. you want to have a different flavor a different stimulus you take that sip and now you're ready to have the chips again absolutely and look i'm i'm all for fast food and fun food and all of that and i know that 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 stuff is also engineered to yes. have as um, palate fatigue is the phrase you, you used, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Have as long a duration before palate fatigue as possible. Mm-hmm. Like it's engineered for us to not get tired of that shit. Um, so, I'm, and again, I'm all for eating those foods in as much as our body is asking for them. And I also know that there is quicker palate fatigue or more natural uh, process to palate fatigue with less processed food. So. That was another part of the hypothalamic amenorrhea recovery for me was going, all right, I wonder, I wonder if my body can listen to its cues better with less processed food. Now, granted, ice cream and processed food was absolutely part of my process, still is to this day. I just, I think it's also worth noting that um, the body tends to have a clearer response to less processed food. Totally. I definitely don't subscribe to like eat um, eating junk. Like I just, I love nutrition. I love the, the science and the facts around mm-hmm. how food impacts your body and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I don't just see it as energy in energy out. What this whole process is for so many people is opening their world up to the fact that they are now, yes, you are able to eat those foods. You can eat those foods. Yeah. Uh, but it is so fascinating when you, when you learn about like, well, if I do choose to eat that, and it has no nutritional value for me mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so you just start to um, move towards foods that are better for you. And Absolutely. then you really start to experience this natural 
fullness and hunger cues, you experience it, you know, more uh, naturally. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, these are all my favorite side tangents. No, no, that's great. I think it's important. And and frankly, in, in any sort of eating disorder recovery or chronic diet recovering conversation, there's going to be some like treading lightly around specific food topics and things like that. So I, um, I know it's like, there's always that disclaimer and everyone y'all, y'all can all do you. But... Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so really I, I had to do a, a full six months go all in. And it was in the six months all in that eventually I, I got my period back and we got to start to, um, to try and have the baby that you might be hearing wailing outside this door at the moment, actually. So forgive me, guys, if you can hear my uh, my darling three-month-old Wesley losing his shit out there as he tans. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm, obviously you can, you can hear the happy ending here. Um, but boy, was it one hell of a process and humbling, too. Like here I was thinking that I had a relationship with exercise when, in fact, I was a hostage. <laughs> I was a hostage. This was a hostage situation. I didn't have the freedom to choose to not go because the fear of not going was too overpowering. Yeah. And so getting to reclaim that and to have a different relationship to it now. Now, granted, now that we're going through COVID and quarantine and the gyms are closed, I'm, I'm, I am climbing the walls. Like it is really difficult to not be able to go back. But I did. I noticed this interesting instinct that I was having. I was like, oh, man, after I'm done breastfeeding, and then I can go back and lift heavy and I don't have to worry so much about getting all the calories so he, for, the, for the breast milk. And and I like really, it was as though I had had the thought after I'm done breastfeeding, I can go back to running my body into the ground. Right. Like that was the instinct. And I had to catch that thought and laugh at it and then immediately call uh, a friend of mine and, and tell her about it just just for the accountability going like, OK, here's the gem that my brain just came up with. I got to drop this on you. Um, this much recovery and a clinician in the field. And this is the thought that my my brain had. So um, so I, we, this is an ongoing process. And the more we can be in communication about it, the less shame there's going to be, the more of a com- uh, uh, more of a community we can build among the other women who are also struggling with this. And we can start to normalize this because this is all, this is a problem that is born of our relationship with our bodies. This isn't just another problem, um, like just another women's problem. This is another women's problem that happens as a result of the information that we're getting about ourselves from a young age. That this could be avoided if we were not told what our bodies needed to look like. We're not naturally addicted to the gym just because exercise feels good. We're addicted to the gym because of the information and validation we get about ourselves because we're going, because we're training our bodies into being something, because we're disciplined badasses who can override our body's cues. That's what we're being validated for. Sentence that comes to my mind that I hear all of the time from women, mm-hmm. mostly women, is, um, oh, I'm going to the gym this morning so that I can eat at this restaurant tonight. Right. Because there is so much to be potentially lost by not going to the gym and going to that restaurant. There's so much identity. There's so much value that could potentially be lost. That's the belief. I fully, I fully resonate. Like I, even today, you know, my, your immediate response, everyone listening, if this is not you DM me, I want to know who you are. (laughs) Like immediate thought is to mitigate whatever, quote unquote damage is being done mm-hmm. later in the day, mm-hmm. whether it's like, because you want to lose weight or just you're an athlete and you want to like not impact your gains and performance or 
whatever your reason is, right. you're always trying to mitigate damage to it. Exactly. Exactly. Which means like that we're living in this perpetually damage control place. Like we're trying to get back to zero all the time. When, what if that, that whole barometer, just throw that out the window. What about how we feel? What about like invented health? The idea of being, uh, being able to determine our health based on how we're actually feeling in our bodies on any given moment, based on the regularities of our cycle, based on our energy and sleep patterns and all of that. So that's, so that's a really great question. What post-recovery mm-hmm. did you notice about yourself that was like, oh, this is health? Mm. How were you feeling? Did, was there any surprises that you were just like, oh, wow, I thought I was healthy, but I was missing this piece? Mm. I think when it wasn't actually until I, my period came back and the, and I started to notice week by week with the, uh, with where I was in my cycle, how my hunger and fullness fluctuated as a result of you know, whether I was ovulating or whether I was actively menstruating or things like that, that being able to be in tune with my body that much, that felt like a whole new paradigm of health to me. And that granted didn't happen until after I got my, my period back, but that was a, uh, a huge realization like, oh, my body would have been, or rather years ago when I was off the pill and just having my period regularly, my body was giving me this information that I decided I didn't want, I didn't need, I didn't need to tune into, wasn't valuable to me. I just overrode it. That I, 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 oh, health is the ability to understand and interpret the signals that my body is giving me. And for my body to actually provide those signals, I have to provide it the calories that it needs to be able to do that. So like that information, um, understanding of that, for me, that's what health is. Nice. Yeah. When you have AJ, those signals literally are are gone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You're like, oh, mucus. (laughs) Oh, like random acne breakouts at the same, around the same time every month. Yeah, how curious, but but we're not we're not looking for it. Like we're we're not actually trusting that our bodies are trying to communicate with us. Right. We're just there trying to override everything and to manage it with our our hypo, hypomanic Western or ideal. You know, it's it's really neurotic. If it wasn't called hypothalamic amenorrhea, I feel like it would just be called like menstruation override. Yes, closes. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, or compulsive women needing to be in control. <laughs> that, that, that kind of pathologizes us and i don't i don't mean to to do that um no, that's true yeah but we're that's true i get i uh definitely just feel like so many women resonate when they hear you know themselves in the stories though they just yeah we're, we're all pretty objective about the fact that uh you know we want things to be a certain way and we want to be able to control and we want to be able to over like this is quite a theme and that's the importance of having this podcast and this conversation right. you're not alone and other women are also questioning yeah. the same things as you and trying to achieve the same thing as you yeah and you're not i think like one of the biggest things is you're not a unique butterfly snowflake mm-hmm. and you're not going to be the one person that can't get their period back right because of xyz and that's really what this is all about of course so if i can if i can offer some just some thoughts to those who are actively really struggling with this stuff and and whether you're in the part of the process of like do i want to give up exercise do i want to give up the calorie restriction do i how seriously do i want to take this whether you're in that kind of pre-contemplative place or whether you're fully in it and being like is this worth it how do i do this I think the question that I I would want to pose to you is 
what are you going what are you going to lose what do you have to lose here that's the the first question and the second part is what aren't people allowed to think about you what aren't they allowed to think for me they're not allowed to think i'm lazy they're not allowed to think i'm undisciplined they're not allowed to think i'm my god yeah those were those were some of mine at least and I had to do, and this is the work that I do with my clients, a lot of work around being able to dismantle those identities so that people are allowed to think that I'm lazy. That doesn't mean I'm lazy, but I have to have the freedom for people to potentially have that thought about me. I have to have, I have to risk someone thinking I'm out of shape and lumpy or whatever, whatever my greatest fear is <laughs> that, that that happens to be. I have to have room for that. I have to include that. Now, the interesting thing is often when we make room for people to have those thoughts about us, it's actually very rare that they ever have those thoughts. Yeah. But we have to do that work within ourselves to be able to invite that possibility, to be able to invite that reality so that it, it, otherwise it's like it, it's not like I don't have discipline. Discipline has me. I have to make sure that that there's a little bit more, yeah. a little more oxygen around that conversation, a little more freedom. I had those thoughts, too, was very much like. But pe- other people aren't going to understand that this is, is intentional mm-hmm. and that there's a goal behind this. And that played a role in why I got very public mm-hmm. my, my small circle and how all of this exploded around me right. was because I was like, hey, I'm gaining weight um, and it's because I don't have my period mm-hmm. and and he's like, why I don't have my period? And I just so I become very vocal about it. Right. And that was like, whatever, you know, that was just my way of like sure. mitigating how many people were wondering why I gained weight. Because what are they not allowed to think of you in that case? They're not allowed to think that I am not capable of being on a diet. Right. Oh, and, and they're not allowed to think that you don't know that you're gaining weight either. Yeah, good one. They're probably not allowed to know Uh, to think that Mm -hmm. I've so I played with this term recently of like uh, that I let myself go is one that comes up a lot sure Uh, now I'm in a place of like yeah bitches I let myself go it's like so good because I be a a hashtag or a t-shirt by the way like hashtag let myself go or whatever the hypothalamic menorrhea uh, interpretation of that is like yes let yourself go absolutely why would you not want to I know. Well, I had like really contemplated that saying, why the heck do people say that saying? What does that even mean? And I feel I have this like theory mm-hmm. that it that it came from originally a positive turn that almost turned kind of like sarcastic. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, you know, I don't know, back when hippies were like a thing. I feel like, you know, they they were probably like, yeah, dude, like I let myself go, man. Right. <laughs> Put all that shit behind me and they were feeling great people probably were like oh it's like they really just like let all of their stresses go and they look so much happier and then it eventually became like a oh they let they really let themselves go yeah interestingly enough like hippies were were judged for not playing by the rules and us letting ourselves go into hypothalamic excuse me hypothalamic menorrhea recovery that is us going, I'm not going to play by these rules anymore, guys. I got to play by the rules that my body is giving me. So there absolutely is something that's totally counterculture and hippie about this recovery process that, yes, letting ourselves go is the only answer. Which is so polar opposite of the people that are te- like tend to get 
I know, I know, because we, we are we are not counterculture. We are very rigid. We are products of the culture. So for us to to risk going into counterculture territory, like this is why this is makes such interesting work for my coaching clients is for them to go. Uh, yes, people are going to think I'm going to. I've let myself go, but there's a sense of they they don't want to be cut off from the community. They don't want to be sent out of the tribe or excommunicated from the culture because they're not valuing the same value systems that like of fitness and rigidity and like, caloric restriction and whatever the definitions of health that they happen to be ascribing to that week. So there's something really dangerous about going against the culture. That makes sense. Why there's so much fear attached to this. It does. Oh, that's like so much for everyone to just contemplate and to like journal about and sit and think about what are your reasons for this? What are you afraid of? What? Just ah, there's so much. Um, So speaking of your clients and everything people can walk away and do, where could people maybe find you or because I know that you might be a really good fit for a lot of people listening. Sure, sure. Um, so my website is mollyburney.com uh, and my uh, my Instagram handle is uh, mbclinicalcoaching. So that's M as in Molly, B as in Bernie, clinical coaching. Um, and so feel free to uh, DM me or, um, or reach out via my website. Happy to talk more about what you're going through and uh, if us working together would be a good fit. Awesome. Oh, Molly, thank you. That was like, such a good conversation. Uh, we talked over each other like a million times. Yeah, forgive um, me, but I think that's a good sign. Like that, that we're just we were just a good fit. Was, yeah, I just like wanted to just keep it going. It was it was awesome. I can't thank you enough. I hope people reach out. I hope people like this episode. And yeah. I love it. Danny, I, I just I love that you've taken this project on. I think it's such an important conversation to be having out there. Um, and let's just uh God, let's just let's just keep going with it. Um, and I want to sign off with the fact that this is not a perfect process. It is absolutely a process, not an event. Um, and just as much self-compassion as we can all fucking have for ourselves along the way, the better. Well, if you have made it all the way to the end of this podcast, then you are in luck because I'm going to chat to you a little bit about the waitlist for the HA Society. Have you joined it yet? This is a coming soon community for women with HA who have or who need a safe space. We're going to have message boards, community calls, and weekly sessions with mindfulness, yoga, meditation, relationship coaches, health coaches, nutritionists, everyone. There'll be opportunities for lessons and Q&As with those nutrition professionals and all coaches. I'm currently working on this platform as we speak. So you can join the waitlist at just type in thehasociety.com and you'll see the webpage. You'll have all the details and you can join the waitlist there or depending on when you're listening to this episode, it's already open and you can go there and join now. So right now it's the beta program and that means there's going to be special pricing for the first few people. I'm going to be pricing it pretty low with the intention of eventually being able to charge more for it once we're up and running and all of the features are open inside of the membership. I also just wanted to say that I had no intention of starting this community. Originally, I just wanted to do a podcast, but when I saw the response from the women and the DMs that I get, please keep sending me your stories in the DMs. I love it when you reach out. 
and share that kind of stuff with me. So I kept getting these responses for more support and I really just couldn't ignore it anymore. And this podcast is like just me talking and I want to connect more with you guys. So making stuff online and facilitating conversations is a huge passion of mine. So this, you know, intersects all of my biggest passions and my journey into one amazing thing, hypothalamic amenorrhea, the society. So again, go and join the waitlist at thehasociety.com. Be a part of the beta group. And I am so excited to see you guys in there. Have a good day.